State I think it tells me everything I need to know about you. Thing. Like, why do you, why do you know these things? But you know, the uh, the ear only has but so many sounds it can listen to in its life, and you just took a couple of mine. Is that true? It's like the no, heart. Obviously, that's not true. Hey, This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Rock and roll. All right, let's hit it. I'm at a, I'm in a mystery location right now, Dougals. I'm in the 49th state uh, admitted to the union. Any guesses? The 49th state? Oh, I, I misspoke. The 48th state admitted to the union. Hmm. My, the places I would have guessed, I'm pretty sure you're not in. Because I, I thought, like Alaska and Hawaii came up first, but I know you're not there. Um, I'm going to go ahead and throw out Nevada. Ooh, it's a good guess. No, apparently Arizona was the last state of the cont- continuous uh States to be admitted to the union. I just really? learned that today. Yeah, forty eighth state, Hobie. Where Where do you get? Do you look at the onion.com? Where do you get your facts? <laughs> well, this is embarrassingly enough from Wikipedia, so could be wrong. Okay, fair uh, enough. No, that's interesting. One more Arizona quiz for you. Um, what is the state fossil? <laughs> the st- the state fossil. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I like I don't even know what example the femur of a lion. Like I don't know what is what is what is right, that? the state the state fossil is petrified wood. Now that's pretty close. I, I, I think. Yeah, no, you did great. But what's the state rock? Uh, I don't know. Number two pencil graphite. The state rock is also petrified wood, which kind of I'm not talking trash about Arizona here. I like Arizona. That's the reason I'm here. But uh. That that kind of tells you all you need to know about Arizona, doesn't it? State it I think it tells me everything I need to know about you. Like, why do you <laughs> why do you know these things? But you know, the uh, the ear only has but so many sounds it can listen to in its life, and you just took a couple of mine. Is that true? It's like the no, heart. Obviously, that's not true. <laughs> it's probably also listed in that Wikipedia article somewhere. All right, let's oh, jump man. into it. Yeah, can, can, so, can, we, can we get back to some sense around these parts? <laughs> I'm, last time I'm like singing praises about Excel for 35 minutes, and this time you're talking about fossils. So we gotta, yeah, we really gotta rein it in. Where's our, where's our production, our production team? So let me kick off with things that I found super interesting this week. You know, I've been fascinated with the technology of crypto, although I'm still building my thoughts around the use case of crypto. One of the most fascinating ones is Stellar, which I've sent you some coin um, as we play around with that. Stellar's strategy is really interesting to me. So they inked a deal with the Ukrainian government a while back, uh, trying to to build out basically blockchain technology for that government. And they just signed a deal with um, basically, as I understand, it's like a stable coin in Nigeria um, that matches the the stable coin matches that currency. Um, And so Stellar's one of their their big use cases or pitches is uh, remittance payments, um, and so this is with a company that has um, operations in London and Nigeria. They've become you know they're kind of 
trying to formally enter that space. The reason I found this so fascinating is because we, like five episodes back, um, tried to dig up some contacts living on, or friends of friends of friends, right? Living on less than $10 a day because we wanted to see if we could leverage this technology to shoot some cash their way. Yeah, and, and the see, bubble. Yeah, right. See, see what that does. Um, curiosity as much as maybe it can help a few folks, right? Well, so the founder of Coinbase, uh, Brian Armstrong, who's a really interesting dude in a good interview if you've run across him, has basically a charity called Give Crypto. Have we talked about this, Dougals? No, we haven't. Tell right, me more so about Give, it. Give Crypto is super fascinating because it's kind of our use case. It's kind of like, hey, we see this technology coming and there's a way to redistribute the bubble, redistribute the wealth. But what Give Crypto has found is that it's really tough to find kind of the poorest of the poor with a smartphone that are of the mindset of like, oh, you know, someone in the Western world might be willing to send me money to help, you know, these basic necessities. That's just not the way you think about it, right? If you're, it's not even like on your radar, right? And that makes perfect sense. Like if you're worried about getting clean water or, you know, keeping people healthy, it's not like you're going, oh, if I had a smartphone, there's probably um, new resources available to me that yeah, I'm not exactly. even aware. Of. Like you don't even know what crypto is. You don't. So uh, I just read through their website and kind of watched what they've been doing over the last six months. And it seems like they've been having a, a tough time finding the right people to redistribute the bubble to. But they they like the concept and the idea. So if you like that concept, I'd say give them a follow or give them a read. It's give, give, givecrypto.org. Really fascinating stuff. And I've reached out to them because I want more information. I'd like to see if we could like maybe partner. But they're moving more to an ambassador model which is you find someone, maybe it's Nigeria, maybe it's somewhere else that is kind of connected to the Western world, but also connected to the people of most need. And you give funds to them to help distribute in the communities, which is again, super, super cool. I still love this concept of a direct one-to-one ability to transfer funds. Um, But it doesn't seem like the world's quite there yet, but who knows where the world will be in six months or five years, right? That's crazy. That's really cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to check that out. So let me know if you uh, if you hear back from them too. But I'm gonna check it out in the meantime. Yeah, absolutely. So then That's let cool. me build on on that before we hop into the fishbowl. So as I've learned more about the crypto space, the thing that's fascinating to me right now that I came across this week, and again, not investment advice. I don't have a significant portion of my funds in any of this stuff I'm going to talk about, but. It is by far the most interesting stuff that I see going on right now. And there's a lot of really smart people here. So I've gravitated towards it. But that's crypto index funds. Now, have you ever heard of this, Douglas? Um, I don't I don't think so. I know the um the crypto mom in the SEC, she's talked about how crypto ETF should be a thing, but I, that, that might be different than what you're talking about. Yeah, well, no, very I mean, there's some similarities there. And there's a, a big push to get crypto ETFs. Um, legal within the U.S. markets. Right now, I think you can buy one over the OTC. Um, It's by Bitwise. And I think the ticker is BITW. But if I remember right, that's market-weighted 
uh, which, and so if you're market weighted in crypto right now, it's basically a Bitcoin fund because Bitcoin has like 70% of the market cap. And then uh, Ethereum has like the next 10 or 15%. Like those two dominate the entire market cap. Yeah, yeah I understand. Yeah, what's been, I, would, I would assume that. What, what's been interesting to me, if you talk about the investment hypothesis of a crypto index fund is Bitcoin is the the least interesting by like a factor of a hundred to me of what's happening in the space. I mean, Bitcoin, even the people that are fans will basically tell you it's digital gold. Well, I don't really think gold is a great investment strategy, right? So uh, Bitcoin is the Kleenex of the space. It deserves a lot of credit for like the branding and helping people understand what's possible. But a market cap weighted index fund is not interesting to me because there's easy ways to hold Bitcoin if that's your cup of tea, right? What's been more interesting to me is this hypothesis that I've talked about um, the last couple of weeks. It's like, what if this is the dot-com bubble, right? And what if you have pets.com, but you also have Amazon, Yahoo, Google, um, everything else. And, and so what if 90% of the stuff is going to completely go bust, not be worth anything, but holding on to the ones that turn into the next Google in terms of the way they kind of transmit money throughout the world. What if there's an interesting hypothesis there? And so what I've come across this week is a fund called the Crypto 20 um, that tries to hold the top 20 funds, uh, not market cap weighted, but it's that's I think that's redistributed weekly, actually. It's an interesting hypothesis. Basically, they're they're saying we want exposure to the entire space. Yeah, so let me let me hop, let me hop in for a moment because I I yeah. think basically if you if you take on what you were saying, uh, your analogy around the the dot com bubble, right? The dot com times. I think that's a good one, and and I'd also mix that in with what we what you've talked about before with regard to finding like the use case, right? The utility. Of it, yes, and I think the utility of it is is going to be much more important than the coin itself. So even that, like twenty coin situation, it's 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 not about the it's not about the coins. Like all of them might fail, because effectively, like what we're looking for right now, I think is the um, is the protocol right that sits on top of blockchain that's then going to make it set that's then going to figure out what the the right use case is. And so it could be none of the coins. It might not really be like Bitcoin might be the only thing, right, that ends up um, actually uh, from a pure like a currency perspective because it has the most ubiquity right now. Bitcoin might be all that matters. But at some point, someone's going to find the the right use case, the right protocol. And maybe one of those coins is is the thing. But it's not about the coin. Like the coin doesn't even end up mattering. Um, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, this is a really interesting debate. And um, what's unique about this or or how my hypothesis is evolving is, is I'm starting to think that basically these are companies that are building really um, useful technologies, but we don't know which one's going to win. In most cases, the company that say they ultimately turn into the Google, that coin would have significant value because of the way most of these currencies are structured. Now, I, well, hold on. Sorry, yeah. I'm going to cut you off for a moment. I, uh, I think that there's probably going to be a spike in that coin when that company does that. But I don't think that the company will, and who knows, but I don't think the company is going to be able to um, hold a, like a monopoly over that use case in the end. So that there'll you know, probably be a spike because there, there's an association, but, but why would they yeah. end up owning the space with that, with that one coin? Well, some of these 
things. Um, and, and we'll, you know, if, if our, if this is an interesting debate for us and, and if the listeners are possibly interested, we can bring out some more experts in the space for sure to talk about this. But in a lot of cases, uh, these companies use that coin to be like create a make or taker market for the exchange of funds. And so there, the more money that runs through the pipes, the more demand there is for that coin. And therefore the more value there is for that coin. So as a holder of that coin, you would also see a decent return, but it's a complicated space. It's way more complex than saying like Yahoo's going to do great. And I'm just going to hold an equity investment in Yahoo. Now, a lot of these initial coin offerings are structured in a way that I think has some similarities to it. Equity investment and therefore holding the coin has some similarities to holding equity, but I don't claim to know all the answers here. I mean, I, I think I need to do more research. Really? I really do. Yeah, I think it probably is worth us um, figuring out who to who to bring on, maybe to talk about it. Feeding off of the analogy that you brought up, I really like. I use the word protocol uh, in a deliberate fashion because, yeah. in some ways, as we talk about this, it's almost like uh, to me, it's almost like someone figures out HTTP right back in the '90s as the right transfer protocol for information over the internet, and then yes. I'm saying that the organization that figures out HTTP. If there's a, I'm gonna make a leap here, but there was a coin associated with that transfer protocol. Now that's what's going to do it. And I'm, I'm saying whoever comes with HTTP, that just becomes the protocol and you actually have to make it ubiquitous to be successful. So therefore you can't limit it to a coin. Who knows what, what direction it takes, but that's, that's where my brain starts to go. And I'm, that's why I think there might be a spike in that coin initially, but then ultimately you have to say, actually, like we, it can't be a walled garden. Yeah, I've definitely heard that. Um, comparison, and I, I think it could be a fair one, especially with um, like Ethereum, right? So lots of stuff gets built on top of it, but does that really mean that it needs to be valuable, um, or is it just kind of a protocol? It, to your analogy, um, I think it's just fascinating. Let me let me wrap this in like the next five minutes because it all ties together. So if you buy any of those, that potential, I'll call it an investment hypothesis. What's crazy right now is. Uh, like the crypto 20, which I would probably put a few bucks in if it was easy to buy. The crypto 20 is really tough to buy. It's um, available on four exchanges that are like in South Africa and Hong Kong and Australia. And if you do any digging, at least when I do digging, I go, man, it's there's a 50% chance my funds are just going to get evaporated or my identity is going to be stolen. Like if I do this, it just doesn't feel, it feels a little fishy because it's new in the space. Mm -hmm. there are ways, and uh, same with all these other coin exchanges. Like you can go buy, have access to 500 coins with some exchange that operates out of China that doesn't feel trustworthy, or you can buy potentially like 40 coins um, with something like Coin or Coinbase Pro that's operated in the U.S. and deals with all the U.S. regulation. And there's a reason for that because it's very easy to rip someone off. I mean, you can, me and you, could make a coin tomorrow go out and try and raise a hundred million bucks and it could be a complete scam. So there's no good way for, uh, well, I shouldn't say that there's limited ways for an investor to act on a hypothesis that says, I want to hold 20 or a hundred of the top coins going on. And I want to find a way to have exposure to those winners long-term. But I think I found a way where you can write some Python code and basically build your own index with us-based exchanges. And so um, I'm going to play around with that in the next couple of weeks. I'll let you know how it goes because 
what I like about this is it's just so underdeveloped compared to the equity markets, right? If I told you that I wanted to buy uh, the top 50 funds with some certain value strategy or some certain momentum strategy, I'd have like five ETFs to pick from tomorrow and I'd open up my phone and I'd buy it and I'd have exactly what I want. In crypto, you can't do that right now. And so the, I don't know, the fact that the space hasn't gone through puberty right now, like, or maybe it's an adolescence, maybe it's a toddler, I don't know. Um, it's really interesting because you can't just be like, oh, I think this is, is a unique approach and I want to attack that. It doesn't exist. You basically have how to build have you, it from scratch. In the past 10 weeks, how have you gone from like dirt cheap value investor to I'm writing Python code to mine crypto ETF creator? <laughs> I love it. Um, so one, I haven't because all my money is still in value. So thank you for mentioning that. But two, this is super. It's like, I feel like you're in uh, 1903 watching the F equity markets be built, but you're watching them be built around the world by people with smartphones. And um, just to be, to pull back the covers on that is really fascinating. So, uh, but Douglas, I really appreciate you bringing this up. Like, this is not a good investment in my eyes. Um, I don't have any money or I don't have any meaningful money. Like I have pennies in this sort of stuff, enough to play around with the technology because I think there's a lot of fraud and a lot of, and most of these things are worth absolutely nothing in my eyes. That does not mean that it's not a fascinating space for me right now. So I'm just kind of playing around with it. I really blame the podcast. This is all your fault. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> can we, can we uh, dive into the fishbowl for a moment to yes. build off of that? Uh, the fraud yeah. uh, piece having nothing to do with crypto, but uh, so uh, SPACs are SPAC, special purpose acquisition companies, and they're basically uh, like shell companies that can go public and then they're on the market then to buy another company. And through that acquisition, they, they then take that other company public. So it's an easy way, an easier way for a company to actually uh, to go public because you don't have to go through all the due diligence with bankers, right, et cetera. If you want to go public, you have a SPAC by you and now you're a public company, right? So lots of companies have actually gone public in this way uh, in, in history, but, um, but especially over the last year. And one, one thing that I think is interesting, and it, this isn't necessarily directly go to fraud, but it's, I want to get your take on something because um, the total number of IPOs is like going off the chain right now. Yeah. Um, like to, to, give, to give you a sense, back in the last IPO cray cray times was like 99, 2000, right? Where you had in 2000, you had a little under 500, let me check, uh, 486 is what I'm, the stat I'm looking at, companies that went public. And in 2000, it was 429, right? So a bunch of companies there. In 2020, we had about 450 companies go public. So not quite at that 1999 level. But so far, this is where like mid-March-ish, right? We just passed past the Ides of March. And we've had 331 companies that have gone public in 2021. In three months, we are, yep. we're, we're getting there, right? Of those 331 companies, 275 of them are SPACs. 83% of the companies that have gone public are SPACs. So as I'm like, as I'm looking at that, SPACs, uh, I don't think this is like a hard, fast rule, but, but generally um, SPACs have about two years to make an acquisition, right? The people that are investing in the SPAC say, you can use our, this blank check we're giving you, 
over the next two years to buy companies. And right now they've got, I think over a hundred billion dollars that of these SPACs that have gone public in, in 2021, they have two years to spend a hundred billion dollars taking other companies public. What are the implications of that? It's like, is what's going on in my head. I'd love to get your take. Yeah, it's uh, people are throwing a lot of money in the fireplace. So the IPO thing, some people use that as a gauge of a bubble. Um, I think that's another thing you can add to the 20 other factors we've talked about over the past uh, several months about potential bubbles here. But the SPAC stuff, yeah, it gives people a blank check. But even if there's not a formal timeline that you, that you have to spend it by, um, though the people in those SPACs, you know, like, you know, like when you're shopping for a car and maybe a bonus comes in and having that money in your bank account makes you maybe make a less rational decision because yes. you're like, oh, I got the I got the money. I need this. I got they're sitting around having to send updates to their investors about what they're going to buy and how they're going to put those funds to use. Historical performance of SPACs is terrible. Uh, Meb Faber is much more of an expert than me. He's done some really good stuff. I've seen other literatures. I'll try and throw that on the Twitter, but people are just throwing money into the fireplace. This is going to end badly. I know someone like Chamath will say that SPACs are great because it allows people like me and you access to companies in the private markets that we wouldn't otherwise have access to. And we're just supposed to give him a blank check so he can go um, invest in those companies for us. I'm sure you know, in 1% of cases, it might work out that way. But right now, the, there's a supply demand piece. Right? Like if one SPAC opened up with a super great management team, maybe that would hold true. There's too exactly. much capital in the market right now. So everything's going to get any decent private company that a SPAC is looking to acquire is going to have 10 suitors instead of one suitor, which means even if it's a good investment, they're going to overpay for it, which might turn it into a bad investment. I'd, I'm super scared of this space. Um, I will not participate. There's no way. No, it's it's insane. I mean, the, I think you you nailed it. In that scarcity can lead to like diligence, right? It and when you don't have scarcity, when you have this like crazy surplus of capital that's sitting out there, you're gonna get through all of the the good stuff, and then say, well, I still have fifty billion dollars to spend. So what am I gonna get? And you're just going to start willy nilly, you know, uh, buying buying organizations. It's going to be, we're going to have some some uh, retail investor and institutional investor money that's chasing silly dilly willy nilly, and that is going to be uh, just crazy, right? Um, no. So my question is, who who wrote these blank checks to the spacs? Like the the people that were um, that had made historic returns over the past decade in equities like it, who was like i'm not satisfied with my current investment options and i have to go to riskier yeah i don't understand i just don't get it uh, i would never write a check to a spac in here so i'm gonna i'm gonna dive i'm gonna dive back on the fishbowl for the other topic and this this isn't a spac right but who's writing checks softbank yeah. seems to continually enjoy writing checks for nonsense it's like in the memo line I think it says, yes, we do know this is nonsense when they write these checks. So Green Seal Capital was a, was people, was because uh, about 10 days ago um, declared insolvency. Uh, Green Seal Capital was a supply chain finance company. So you can kind of think about this as a, I don't know, have you gone deep in Green Seal? 
No. Skippy. So, um, so it's a supply chain finance company. So basically if uh, you can think of it as if, if you're an organization that has, um, that has invoices, right. That people are um, sending you the green. So would buy that invoice for on, at some discount so that people get paid faster. So instead, if you said, yeah. I'm going to pay this invoice in 30 days, they, they would say, well, actually I'm going to buy that invoice for 90% of it. And I'm going to pay you in two days. Right. And yes. so the, the organization that's waiting for their money, they get their money. Which faster. is, I mean, basically financing of yeah. it's yeah. just another type. Like, that, that is what it is. Right. So that, but with that alone, no issues. The issue was that um, Mr. Greensill basically said, we're going to, we're going to democratize supply chain financing. Why? I don't know. But this was something that apparently he, he's been obsessed about. And he could do it for low, low rates. It's like, it has all of the bullet points of something that's not going to work out, right? I'm going to democratize this thing. Um, I can do it for cheaper because I have proprietary technology that can do yeah. it better than anyone else. Oh, what's that technology? Oh, well, don't don't worry about the man behind the curtain, right? Is effectively what happened. People that are um, that worked at the company are coming out and saying their proprietary te- the proprietary technology was basically like Google Sheets, and, <laughs> and so there wasn't any. But of course, we've got David Cameron, the um, you know the UK pri- former UK Prime Minister, as an advisor. SoftBank was a was a big investor. Um, we work anybody. Uh, as well, right? They, they just keep writing checks to nonsense. Now people are getting screwed over because they were on a path to a, Greensill was on a path to a $40 billion IPO. And instead yep. they just declared insolvency. Like that is a, how are, how are those two things like being considered in the same couple month period? So anyway, sorry, well, I, I was reading about this thing and I was like, we, we are, we're crazy. We are at a, we're at a crazy time. Is, is yeah. And that's fair. I think talking weekly gets you you forget that we've covered how much of a bubble we're in. You know, and then and then three more weeks go by and you go, why are people being so crazy? And you kind of forget, oh, it's because we're in a massive bubble and it hasn't popped yet. This all reminds me, I hate to say it, but of Enron. And uh, there was a podcast this week. I think it's called White Collar Crime with uh, the former CFO, Annie, Andy, or Andy Fastow. Um, yep. did you catch this Dougals? I uh, know I haven't, I haven't listened to it yet, but I am, it's, it's on the quee. That's what I call the cue. <laughs> so, um, I won't spoil it for you, but it's just fascinating. It's basically a whole debate about, um, you know, what I did wasn't technically illegal. Um, and so what does that mean? Like, was it actually, he starts off, you know, I think he's taking credit for, all the people who basically he destroyed their retirement and stuff. Um, so I, I don't want to give the impression like he's not contrite and I don't personally know the guy. This is the first I had heard him speak. Um, but he ha- he'll give a lot of examples about accounting policy today in ways that seem misleading, but is technically true and um, really fascinating. Listen, because I think his point is simply that, you can do almost anything you want within accounting policy and call it legal. And that doesn't mean, and outside of that is this line of what's, what's actually right. Yep. Accounting like, policy isn't what actually is actually right. Right. Yep. Yep. And if you, if you haven't, uh, I recommend reading conspiracy of fools about Enron. It's like a phenomenal book. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the kind of thing that I hope doesn't lead to a baby bathwater type situation. 
I mean, what, what situation is that? What are we throwing out here? Are you familiar with, are your kids valuable? <laughs> Don't no, I'm kidding. Start with me. No, no, but <laughs> basically like, um, if you take socks, for example, like Sarbanes-Oxley, um, yeah. which came out of all of the scandals that happened about 20 years ago, I think you start to hit into a little bit of baby bathwater situation. Like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because you say, well, how is it that these companies could get away with this stuff for so long? Let's change all the practices and all the regulations in order to, to prevent it. When you, and, and I think that type of blunt instrument, um, it, it doesn't get to the heart of the issue. And I think you end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I think yeah. we need to figure out like how you, how you really prevent this stuff from happening. And you can't just say, it's not just the accounting practices. Like it's, it goes a little bit um, beyond that, I think. And so I think we need to really figure out, get like a root cause analysis type situation in this and not take a blunt instrument to it. I mean, because you can basically, if you, if you look at socks, right. Um, that, that happened 20 years ago, that's the reason why a number of people name that as a core reason as to why companies are waiting so much longer to go public, right? You sit private for so long yes, because it's so hard to go um, to go public. And then what do you get when these companies want liquidity or their, um, when their employees might want liquidity or if they, if they want more capital, you end up having these huge companies that might end up going public via a SPAC, right? And you have SPACs that then take the due diligence out of the way because the due diligence yeah. is so difficult. And so we just have to, we have to think more clearly about downstream implications of these blunt instruments we start throwing out. Yeah. So the, the last point for that Andy Fastile interview that I just think, I mean, I, I think this is a really solid point on his behalf is he talked about an oil company that he did some consulting for after he got out of jail, which is, that's quite a sentence, right? I got hired for a fortune 500 company to do financial consulting after I got out of jail, but um, if you can, they were doing proven reserves um, at $90 a barrel. Right. And um, current, price of oil was like 50. So he's going, are they being deceitful? Like, is this a fraud? I mean, they're, they're basically overstating their proven reserves by almost double, right? Well, what it turns out is actually happening is the county rules say, I think it's take a five-year average of the oil price um, from the last five years. And then at year end of the previous year, that equals 90 bucks. That's what you should do your accounting for if this is a live example for 2021. Well, that's typically a great model. And in 95% of the cases is probably uh, a prudent accounting standard. But if oil falls off a cliff in three months, is it fair to your investors to say my reserves are worth twice as much as they are now? It could be because it's probably you know a short-term dip, and it will probably move back closer to that ninety dollars a barrel. But it also could be incredibly deceitful, and it could be something you are doing intentionally to try and mislead uh, the mainstream investors, right? Yeah. So and what's that, that right intent is there? super important. I I think I mean it probably really comes down to governance. Yeah, but at some point we ask too much of our governance bodies, don't we? I mean, to regulate I don't mean, I don't, mean I don't, I don't mean government, sorry. I meant like, uh, like board governance. Like yeah, how do we okay. incentivize the boards of, of companies, right? In order to make sure that they, um, you know, they, they kind of keep their act together. It makes me think about, uh, sorry, if this goes, if this is too much of a tangent, you know, um, get your gong show hook and bring me back in. But um, it may, have, you, have you read um, 
uh what's it called uh clash of cultures no um the clash of cultures it's a uh, bogle's i think it's bogle's last book maybe um okay. before he passed away a couple years ago john bogle or jack bogle as his friends knew him was the founder of vanguard um and what he was talking about was basically in this book was investment versus speculation but a big part of the book uh, as well because he just believes as you if you look at vanguard he's like basically just put your money into a low-cost passive index fund and you'll be golden um but he he's he's discussing the history of the mutual fund markets and talking about governments of mutual funds how you you have like two separate companies there's like the management company of the fund and then the investing uh, company of the fund and the incentive structure is such that you you can ba you basically don't need to protect your investors because you're really working for the management company like in the end and so they're they're not incentivized to to serve uh, investors, yeah. especially not retail yep. investors because institutional is so big now. And I think it's it's similar. Like, how do you incentivize the governance um, of the board governance for companies in a way such that they they need to like keep the company's act together, right? And shouldn't be able to get away with with this type of stuff. Well, and I think well, that, that's you, really what's about. Yeah, but you that's very very hard because most of your board of directors is incentivized strongly with equity. And so they really care about the stock price. And in this case, the stock price is almost undoubtedly going to be better if your proven reserves on your 10K are double what they would be in maybe a fair assessment of the facts. So that makes sense. Is there do yeah. you think there's a way do you think there's a way to um to have just have a longer term focus on that? Because I to me it makes sense that the incentive structure would uh, you'd be incentivized by the value of the company. I think that makes perfect sense right? It's just, how do you get to a place where you're incentivized by the long-term value of the company and not the short-term value of the company? It's a, it's a very tough challenge. Um, I don't know. It, sometimes the solution to a lot of these problems is you just hire decent people, um, but that's easier said than done. I, I don't know. I think we should have a whole episode on that and maybe bring in some people smarter than us to talk to it because the incentivization, the correct incentives as munger would say is like i mean that's critical to so much of life but um creating the correct incentives is really really hard yeah i did there's got to be there's got to be something there like and uh, I, I it's never this simple and this type of stuff will never go through because there's too much money on the other side but i would think either um, some sort of lockup period, you know, you have like a six month lockup period after an IPO that folks can't sell yeah. it. You have some kind of a lockup period or, um, or the tax incentive is such that you have, instead of, uh, you know, the one year long-term, uh, capital gains rate, there's like a five year, you know, or so something like that. I'm, I'm just, you know, making this up off the top of my head, but I would think there's some way that you can incentivize such that it's like just a huge, massive financial cliff if you care more about what happens tomorrow versus caring about what happens in you know five years. Because I, I was doing a deep dive on taxes uh, this week in part because it's kind of tax season, right? And I still feel like long-term capital gains tax is a little much. Now it got increased with um, the Affordable Care Act and some other things recently, but- You think it's high, is it, that what you're saying? Yeah, it, it, it's like 23.8% or something um, in the right, income tax range. And yep. um, I would love to see maybe another bracket there, a five-year holding period, because um, I think it could evolve a lot of investing strategies in a way that makes sense long-term. Like it, 
almost always the longer holding period, the better. Um, if you have a sound investment uh, strategy. So to, do, do you follow what I'm saying here? Like only one break that there should be a difference in how you're rewarded for holding something five years or 10 years, as opposed to 13 months. Like those are two entirely different things. Yeah. I mean, I think, I do think that there's it. There's a line in there, and who knows what the exact time period should be where something is not an investment. I would even say that, and I have you know one year holding periods and things too, right? But based on whatever my model will say, um, but that's not really an investment. I think if you're hold, if you're only holding something for a year, I mean it. It might be an investment. Sorry, I think it, it's an. It can be an investment for the individual. Like a, you could you could be saying I'm making that as an investment, but it's not really an investment in the company. Yeah, yeah. Well, and actually, I actually got some questions this week on why my holding strategy is a year. My holding strategy is a year typically because of a quantitative model that I'm leveraging with a value investing philosophy yeah. rather than necessarily like in in a lot of cases, I'd prefer to have a longer holding period. So we, we could do a deep dive on why we chose the holding periods we did. But one of the reasons one year makes sense for me is because I don't have the as much time as I'd like to do a deep, deep dive into every company I invest in, figure out an absolute fair value assessment. I mean, like the way someone like Klarman does it is he knows exactly what he thinks the company is worth. And when it reaches that point, he's going to sell. My hack with the quantitative strategy is saying in about a year, I expect it to be near fair value and therefore I'm going to turn over my portfolio and go into things that are cheaper. Right. Yep. And I mean, I, I even, there are some stocks that I own um, based on the model that when the model tells me to sell it, I may just transfer it into a different account. Cause I, cause I actually believe like they're companies that I want to hold for the long term. Yep. Yep. yep not yep. just because of the model. Um, most of them don't fit into that, but there are like two or three that kind of fit into that. And those are ones that I'm, I'm like truly invested in. Um, and I, I would like to have bought even if the model didn't tell me to, but yeah, it's a, it's interesting. I think there's some kind of a, I, I'd love to talk more about that incentive structure, uh, and maybe talk to some people that are, that think about that all the time. Um, because there's gotta be something that can be done there. We have to figure out it's a Venn diagram between what would work and what could feasibly actually go into action. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the problem. Um, and so to your point, just like hire good people, um, and incentivize them to stay good. I think is the is the real answer. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Anything else in the fishbowl? I'm gonna have to currently. Yeah, I, I have one. I have one quick thing uh, in the fishbowl, um, and that's the. Have you have you read about the one million black women initiative that Goldman has put out there? I just saw the headline. Um, I'd love more info. Yeah. So, well, there's the thing is there actually isn't that much more than the headline, um, and so right. I wish I, I wish that they I wish they'd actually like done something as opposed to just announcing things they will do. But yet and still, I think that, uh, that there's there's something in this. So Goldman put out this report called Black Womenomics. I, I, let's ignore that oh, title for a moment. That's a terrible name. That's yeah. Terrible. I mean, I don't know who NPR was like, yeah, let's go with that one. Um, but they put out this report that, um, that outlined the wealth gap, basically. And so they're saying that uh, Black women hold 90% less wealth than white men, right? And um, a significant part of that is because there's this earnings gap that has continued to widen over the last like 20, 30 years. So black women currently make 15% less on average than white women and 35% less than white men. 
In the 80s, wow. the 1980s, the earnings gap was 5% between black and white women. So there's a 3x increase, right? And the earnings wow. gap that's happened over the last 30, 40 years. Um, and only 0.5% of black women own their own businesses. So like white men are 25, 24 times more likely to own their own business, right? So they, they pointed out like there's this gap. So what Goldman's doing is they're investing, what they say they're going to do is they're investing $10 billion in black women led businesses over the next decade. And then they're gonna put $100 million in philanthropy in addition to that. Um, and one thing I, so two things I like, um, one is that they, I, I just like generally think that uh, making this investment is just like awesome cool like do that the second is they're upfront about the like the incentive right like from from what i read goldman isn't saying like we are a we are an incredible group of people and therefore we want to do really nice things for people like that's not how they came out and framed it they came out and said um this this group of people are meaningful to the economy and so if we want to be able to make money in the future we need them to be successful. Like they, they basically straight up just came out and said that, uh, which I, I just think for the symbol of capitalism, I think in the US, I think it's it's meaningful that they're at least somewhat upfront about that. So they basically said like, if we make this investment, we can add uh, 1.7 million jobs and grow GDP by an additional 2%. Um, and so like, we should do that, right? Um, and so I'm, I, I wish that they, one, had named it something different because let's not, black womenomics is like not a thing I ever wanna say again. And two, um, I wish that they'd actually done something with it and then made the announcement because it just, like, I, I looked over many articles to try and figure out like what they were actually going to do. And the amount of detail they ever got to was just we're going to invest $10 billion in black women-led businesses. And like, so what does that mean? Um, I don't know, but, I, but I'm, I'm glad it's happening. But I just wanted to, I want to drop that, get your, get your thoughts and uh, make sure that lyric was out there. Yeah, those facts are crazy. Um... I love the info there. These are, as we've talked about, these are really tough challenges to solve. I, 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 I'm strongly with you though. Um, one in hating the name. <laughs> yes, it's, it's not a good name. But, uh, but at the same time, of course, if Goldman's going to come out with something, they're going to name it something terrible like this. Like that's just it's it's not. I, I think for now, I applaud the effort, and then I need to. Um, get more information and kind of dig in but um it's better than nothing that's what i'd say i just i'm i'm looking forward to seeing some specifics like i wish that they had said anything like uh we're investing 10 billion dollars and we're going to start by creating like a, a black female focused accelerator and we're going to start but you know or something but it just a it just it's just a big number you know and so yep. we're going to come out with a big number so but yeah i agree better than nothing what's crazy about those big numbers though i've been thinking about this with march madness and then but like, you know, what's the difference in you signing up to play someone's March Madness pool for like the possibility of a million dollar prize or like a $10 million prize or like a $100,000 prize? One, I guess with those things, I know I'm not going to win. But we also know the human brain really struggles once you get above, like people struggle to comprehend the difference between a trillion and a billion and even a million bucks, right? So I wonder if there's corporate strategies Anytime someone comes out with this new philanthropic thing, if they actually pick a number that's meaningful or if they just try and pick a number that sounds meaningful. There's once you get over a certain number, it feels just it just gets into the category of big or unachievable. And then they're all just the same. 
right? And if you if you throw out something big enough, it'll sound to your point, sound meaningful. And it's really more about the the PR of it versus the substance. Yeah.